0: Okay, let's review, uh, review last week for a minute. Um, what do you remember from last week? Yeah? Uh, Actually, not last week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're right.
0: Thank you for the correction. It was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. What do you remember from two weeks ago? trumpet anything you blow you blow through so we what what does the word inspiration mean what what two words come together in the greek to make the word inspiration well tracy uh, god breathe. yeah god and breath yeah those are the two words that come together to make that one greek word that we translate into english inspiration now when we say inspiration do i mean that uh like when it's recording historical things, there's this historical narratives in the Bible, you know, not just teachings like we see in the epistles and in Jesus what Jesus said, but it's historical narratives like Genesis, okay, and Exodus. It tells us tells you what happened in history. Does that mean that everything that those people said is being recorded? That what they said was inspired by God? What was inspired by God according to Second Timothy? All. Scripture. And their scripture is a Greek word, graphe. So the writings are inspired. And the writings are oftentimes recording things that sinful men say, but it doesn't mean that those things, sinful things, sinful things that men said has God's authority behind it. So it means their writings are inspired by God. Okay? And I gave you an example of Job's friends, some things the Pharisees have said, wicked men have said throughout history, doesn't mean Those are examples to us, or God is speaking through them, saying those wicked things. It means the scripture, the writings we have, that records those things is inspired by God. Okay? All right. Uh, What what else do you remember from from last week? Does anyone remember the thing I gave you from John Wesley? The three-point thing I gave you to prove the Bible is God's word? give it a try, Brother Tracy?
2: Yeah, uh, there's uh, three categories of uh, who could have wrote the Bible. Okay. Either it would be good men and angels, Okay. Uh, bad men and, and devils, Okay. or God himself. Okay. And uh, good men and angels, uh, uh, they could not have written the Bible because the Bible has over 3,000 uh, accounts of thus saith the Lord. Okay. So it says thus saith the Lord all through it. So if they were to do that, they would be liars and deceivers, so they couldn't be good men and angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't be bad men and devils because uh, the whole of the Bible talks against them. It talks against their wickedness and, and tell, tells us we need to live holy lives and speaks against what they want. Uh, so they couldn't have done it. So it only could have been uh, authored by God.
0: Right. Now, one, thing, one, one correction I would make to that is I wouldn't use the word written because the Bible says the holy men of old. God used them to write the scriptures down. i say the source of the scripture, authorship. the source or authorship of the scripture is found in God alone. I found in, in good men and angels and, and bad men and devils it's very good so that's a good analogy to use and I actually used that this past week uh, with a guy who uh I guess he met up with Raven Ministries in, in New Orleans Louisiana he repented he moved to Florida joined them and then eventually apostatized because of the writings of a guy named Bart Ehrman okay he has a Ph.D. In, in, in Greek, and and he writes books like Misquoting Jesus, and he questions the, the validity of the Bible. And I was able to use that with him, and he really had no answer for it. I mean, he, he really uh, couldn't deal with that issue. So it's a very simple uh, analogy to use, but I think it's very powerful because it gets down to the, the nitty-gritty. What else do you remember from two weeks ago? Anything else? Why is there a power in God's word? In God's word. Yeah, remember, went back to Genesis. Why is there power in God's word? What what did, what did God's word do in Genesis? Speech, Speech thing. It, has, it, it can speak whole the whole universe into existence. Okay. So surely it can piece the, pierce the hearts of the man who He created and with the truth. Okay, and we also talked about the uh since the Bible is these things, how we should treat it, you know how we should treat God's word okay um <clears throat> we also talked about the, a couple weeks ago about who are who are the writers or the eyewitnesses, etc. stuff like that okay, so this week we're going to talk about um, the uniqueness of the Bible um, let me just give you some facts for you to chew on and this these are some things that make the Bible unique um These things can't be said about any other book in the world. One uh, is different from all others in that it was written over a 1,500-year span. Okay, At least 1,500 years. That's if you assume that Moses wrote all of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, The only one would be in question is Genesis. Maybe Adam wrote some of that. Maybe Noah wrote some of it. Maybe Abraham wrote some of it. Most people say that Moses wrote it. But if those guys wrote it as well, now we have over a 4,000 year period of time that the Bible was written over. Okay? So the book is written over a 1,500 year span. It has over 40 different authors. Over 40 different authors. People like kings, and shepherds, and fishermen, and judges, and tax collectors, and doctors, all had their part and God using them to breathe through them what he wanted to give to us. It was written on three different continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Aramaic is a very small portion, some in Daniel, and a little bit in the Gospels where Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Aloy, Aloy, uh, Lama Sabakhtami, that's, that's Amer- Aramaic there. Okay, but most of it's Hebrew and Greek. It covers lots of controversial subjects with no contradiction and in complete harmony. Try to find two different authors who agree on every single detail, let alone two authors from a 1500 year span from different continents and from different backgrounds. Try to find two, but we have over 40 and agrees in perfect harmony and with no contradiction among them. Um, it's the bestseller of all time. And from stats from the Bible Societies up until the year 1974, which is a long time ago now, up until the year 1974, whole Bibles or portions of Bibles, this is just the Bible Societies alone, their stats alone, Okay, 2.5 billion copies of the Bible have been printed up until 1974. Only through the Bible Societies. Okay, so you can imagine how many have been printed up until now, present day. Um, It's been printed in over 2,400 languages up to the year 2004. And that's 95% of the people. Not 95% of the languages, but 95% of the people in the world. It's been printed in their language. Okay. So these things cannot be said about any other book. Being the bestseller of all time, all, all these times were printed up over all these years, all these different people, all these different languages, all these different places it came from, over such a long period of time. Now, there's it's also unique in the fact that it survived persecution. Uh, Diocletian, who was a Roman emperor, uh, made a law to destroy all churches, all church manuscripts, all books, and all Christians. He wanted to prevent Christianity. He wanted to destroy Christianity. Twenty-five years later, Constantine, who was a supposed Christian emperor, wanted um, several copies, perfect copies of the Bible printed up by the government. So twenty-five years before a noble member wants to destroy all of Christianity, and twenty-five years later, another Christian who calls himself a, another emperor that calls himself a Christian. Wants the government to print up copies of the Bible. We talked about this last week or two weeks ago. Uh, Voltaire, the French skeptic who died in 1778, said, "Christian, this is a quote from him. Christian will be uh, extinct within a hundred years of my lifetime." That's what he said in 1778. Within fifty years, the Geneva Bible Society took over his home and printing operations and printed a th- printed thousands of Bibles through his own operation, his own household. Let me give you some history about the Bible. John Wycliffe, uh, who lived in the 14th century and was an Oxford professor in England, uh, he was the first one to attempt to translate the Bible into English, Okay, and was successful in translating the whole Bible into English. Now, it was Middle English, and if you were to look up Middle English, it would be very difficult for you to read it, Okay, uh, but it was English nonetheless. He translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, Okay, which is a Latin copy of the whole Bible, he translated that into English in 1384. He also sent out open-air preachers. Uh, they were called Lollards. The Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S, Lollards. Those were the people who he sent out to preach the truth because he saw the church as corrupt and needing reform. And uh, he came against the Pope. He came against all the uh, different heresies of his day. Now, after he died, he died in the late 14th century, the 1300s. He was declared to be a heretic after he died. So the church uh, dug up his bones and burned them into ash and threw them into the river. As if that's going to do anything to him. But that's what they did. And then in the 16th century, a couple hundred years later, a guy named William Tyndale comes along. This guy knew eight languages fluently. Eight. He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, uh, he knew um, Italian, he knew Spanish, he knew German, uh, he knew French, and he knew English, eight languages total. So he was a very, very smart man. Okay, And he was attempting to translate the Bible into English, into not Middle English, but English to his day, and he was following the footsteps of John Wycliffe, and he had some resistance within the church of his day. And he, he was the first person to translate the whole Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. Okay, not from Latin now, but from Greek for the New Testament and Hebrew for the Old Testament. Okay, which were the original languages. One time he sat down, this is a famous statement from him, one time he sat down at the, at the dinner table of the people he was staying with and a learned clergyman came in to dinner with him as well. And of course he was against what William Tyndale was doing because he wanted the Bible in the common man's language so everyone could read the Bible for themselves. And this learned clergyman said, uh, we'll take the Pope's laws over God's laws any day. Basically what he said. Okay. And uh, William Tyndale's response to him is, I defy the Pope, I defy the church, and if God allows me the time, a plow boy will know more of the scriptures than you. That's what he said. And with doing that, he wrote his own death sentence. He, he was on the run the rest of his life, uh, translating the scriptures. At one point in time, he ran away because he was almost caught, and he ran away. He got into a ship with all his documents, all his manuscript he had been translating. The ship was destroyed at sea, and he lost everything. Had to start all over again. And he started all over again and did it again. And eventually, he was betrayed by someone who said he was his friend and betrayed into the authorities of England and he was brought before trial as a heretic, and uh, they declared him a heretic. And they tied him to a stake, they strangled him to death, and then they burned him at the stake. But before he was strangled to death, uh, another famous saying he had was, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And within four years, the king of England authorized the printing of a Bible into English called the Great Bible. And a lot of the work that went into that Bible from Miles Coverdale, who's the guy who wrote that Bible, translated it, came from William Tyndale's work. And it also set up the, the set the way for the King James Bible, or also called the Authorized Version, to be printed in 1611. They started translating that Bible in 1604. And, uh, a little apologetic here for a second on the King James Bible. Uh, a lot of times people will say that, uh, because you know, it's called the King James Bible, that King James wrote it or King James translated it, which is all a bunch of nonsense. Uh, the King James Bible came about because there were some Puritans who didn't like uh, the Great Bible and some other Bibles coming out. They thought it was corrupted with some Catholic teachings in there, with the translation. So they wanted authorization to translate the Bible themselves into English. And so the king, who was James at that point in time, he authorized the translation of the Greek and Hebrew into English by the Puritans. That's it. That's why it's called the King James Bible. Because he gave the authority to the Puritans to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English without any threat of punishment or death, like they've had in the past. And so that came about, that started in 1604, was completed in 1611. Okay? Uh, now I want to give you some some sheets here. Okay, you might have to hand these out, son. We're going to talk about some other things about the scriptures here. And we're going to talk about some science in the Bible. There's things that are found in the Bible that are scientific that uh, at that time scientists did not know about. In fact, not only did they not know about it, but they disagreed with it. But all along was right there in the scriptures, the God of science, the God of knowledge, was attempting to reveal these things to them if they would have simply gone to the scriptures. You know, so scientists try to pride themselves on being smart, you know, and scientific, and um, that the Bible is written by a bunch of goat herders in the desert who don't know anything. And so this, this will help you understand that the source of the Bible couldn't possibly be mere men who couldn't have known these things. But it had to have been the God who knows all things. Okay, so, as you get these, we're going to look at them one by one. Uh, as you're waiting for those who are still waiting for your copies, turn to Isaiah 40 and verse 22. Now, back in Isaiah's time, uh, no one had gone to outer space yet. Uh, no one had landed on the moon yet. No one had seen the earth from that perspective yet. Okay, And... Uh, a lot of people during this time, and also later on in history, believed the earth was flat. Okay? But some people will try to say, as you're witnessing to them, well, you used to think that, you used to think the earth was flat. Well, no, I've never thought that, and people who read the Bible have never thought that. There are church people who've thought that in the past, but they'll try to align you with those people. Okay? Uh, but it's simply, just because a group of people, they, they call themselves the church, the Roman Catholic Church, believe the earth was flat, does not mean the Bible taught it. Okay, so Isaiah 40 and verse 22 says, is he, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and in its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, listen, and who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So, the word we're focused on here is circle, if you have the new King James. What does it say in the King James, brother? Isaiah 40, verse 22. I think it might say sphere in there. The Hebrew word means the horizon. okay. So God, He's seeing from out. You know, He's seeing from outside of the earth itself, and He sees the horizon of the earth. He sees it as a circle. It's not flat. It's a circle with the with the sun coming over the top of it. Okay, um, but it means a sphere or the horizon of the earth as the sun comes over top of it. If
2: I remember right, I think the King James says circle.
0: Does it? Okay. Yeah. yeah.
3: the
2: sphere it says here uh, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth mm-hmm. and inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and right. spreadeth them out
0: as so science hasn't always agreed with this, but now they do agree with it. But back in Isaiah's time, they already knew these things. Uh, Jeremiah 33 and verse 22. Let's turn there. And we're going to go through all these, go through a few of these here. Jeremiah 33 and verse 22. It says, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So the host of the heaven cannot be numbered. as innumerable. And um, at one point in time, people like Ptolemy would say there was only a thousand stars, or there were very few stars. You can count them, basically. Uh, but now science believes the stars are innumerable. They know this. Now they agree with the Bible on these things. Okay? I'll turn to Job chapter 26. Now what you see why God calls the wisdom of this world foolishness in his sight. Job chapter 26 and verse 7. It says, uh, He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Referring to the free float of earth and space. Uh, there's times in the past that people have believed it sat on a large animal. You may have even seen that, uh, a mythical creature, his name was Atlas, who was holding up the earth, okay? Uh, you even have road maps that are called atlases these days, okay? But people haven't always believed that, science hasn't always believed that, uh, but now they do, of course, they've gone out of space and seen it for themselves, but this was known back in Job's time. Uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 3. says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, that the things which are, are seen were not made of things which are visible. And, uh, you know, the science used to believe that, uh, science was ignorant about these issues, uh, but now they believe we're made up of invisible elements that we call atoms. And, uh, we have, even have things like atomic bombs. Okay, let me just pick out a couple more here we can go through. There's other ones we can go through too. Each star is different. Um, that's what the Bible proclaims and science agrees with that. That light moves, the air has weight, the wind blows, the wind's blowing cyclones. Uh, is 1711. Let's turn there. if you're taking history, American history, you might know this about George Washington. Uh, he went to a blood to supposedly get a, a disease, a sickness out of his body. And barber shops used to be the bloodletters. Um, you know, they wouldn't cut you on accident when they're shaving your face for you or cutting your hair. They would cut you on purpose. That's the way they believed they were getting the sickness out of your body. And that's why it has a red and, you know, I think it has blue in the stripes now, too, but you see the red and white stripes circling around in front of the barbershop. That's what it used to mean. They might put some blue in there now, too, I think, sometimes. But uh people used to believe that sickness was in the blood, and so you had to let the blood out, let the sickness out. Yeah, they used
2: to use uh, leeches.
0: Yeah. Yep, they did that as well. Uh, but Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar, to make atonement for your souls, for there's a blood that makes atonement for the soul. It's talking about the atonement as well. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the Bible has always proclaimed that. And they have ocean floors contain deep valleys and mountains, and Jonah knew that. Uh, but scientists are just now, you know, within the last uh, couple hundred years, saying these things. Oceans contain springs. Now uh, let's this is where we're in Leviticus, let's go to Leviticus fifteen and verse thirteen, talking about washing your hands under running water, which is a very pretty new invention uh, as far as uh, the rest of the world is concerned. Leviticus fifteen thirteen says, And when he who has a disease is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing. Wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water, then he shall be clean. So God always spoke these things to the, the Israelites, and they, they knew better. Uh, but people used to wash their hands in still water. Yeah, which is sounds pretty nasty to us now with the knowledge we have. But that used to be done. Okay, so let's go to the bottom of this sheet now. We're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible in other ways as far as manuscripts. Now, a manuscript... Is simply an old document, an old copy of a document we have today. Okay, uh, and there's different l- ways we know how old a manuscript is. For example, the Bible used to be written on, on papyrus reed. Okay, a plant. They would flatten out. It'd be a, a thick type of paper. They would write on. Uh, and then later on, it was written on animal skins. Okay, and on dried leaves that were formed together. They write on those things, and. Uh, Starting around the 3rd, 4th century, they would start to write something called a unicl. Uh, It's U-N-I-C-A-L, unicl, which means all the letters that were written in that document were all in capital letters. Everything was in capitals. Okay, And then later on, starting in the 9th century, we have what's called minuscule manuscripts. It means everything was written in lowercase, all lowercase letters. So we know these things, how to date things by this way. And, uh you know, when you get an education, uh, whether it's in public school or at home or or college, a lot of times you'll read people like Plato, Herodotus, you'll read Aristotle, you'll read the Iliad of Homer, you'll read some of these documents, these authors you see on the left-hand side here at the bottom of your your paper, you'll read these things. And you'll never hear a teacher or a professor question the validity of these things, You'll never hear them say, oh, this is not true. They believe that what you're reading is exactly what that person wrote down. Okay, But then when it comes to the Bible, they'll say, well, what we have today couldn't possibly be what they had back then. They question the validity. They question um, whether it's been preserved or not. They'll question all these things. So I want to show you a comparison of these other books to the New Testament here. And we see the first column says the date that they were originally written. Okay. And then the second column says the earliest copy we have. Okay. So as we compare the first column to the second column, we see the approximate time span, uh, actually the fourth column total from the name here, the approximate time span of the, between the original and the copy. So uh, let's go to Plato. Plato was originally written from 427 to 347 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. With a 1200 year span between when he wrote it and the earliest copy we have. Now, like I said before, people want to play this game with the Bible. They'll say, well, if there's this many years between when it was written and our earliest copy, we got to play the telephone game. You know, if I whisper something in Brother Kevin's ear, goes in everybody's ear around the room, they whisper only one time, and it gets back to me, it's going to be something completely different, supposedly. Now, if, if we do that, that would probably happen. Because, God's not involved in the process, is he? He's not involved in preserving what I said to Brother Kevin, and then whoever's sitting here says to me. Okay, he's not not involved in that. And they'll try to accuse the Bible of having that problem. But they'll never accuse these books of having that problem, these writings. Uh go down to uh Euripides. Was written originally in four hundred eighty to four oh six BC. The earliest copy we have is eleven hundred AD, that's thirteen hundred years between the original writing of it and the earliest copy we have. Uh, go down to Homer, who wrote the Iliad, um, which is the closest we're going to get as far as proximity and number of copies there are. Uh, the Iliad of Homer is originally, originally written in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we had dates back to 400 B.C. That's a 500-year difference, which is closer to 900 years or 1,200 years. And um, as we go to the last column now, we see the number of copies we have of each one. Okay. You see that Plato, we only have seven copies total of, of what he wrote. Um, we're talking about manuscripts now, not people, not modern day books that people printed up, of, but manuscripts of it. Okay. We go down to, uh, Euripides. We only have nine copies of that. Okay. And we go down to Homer. We have 643 copies. That's, that's quite a few compared to the rest, right? But let's go to New Testament now. Originally written in the first century between 50 and 100 AD. The earliest copy we have, which is it's a it's a partial, not a whole copy, but a partial, is about one hundred thirty AD. And there is another copy that someone thinks dates back to seventy AD, a part a part of Mark that's not listed here, but most scholars would disagree with him on that. Okay? But even going back to one thirty, we have less than a hundred years between the writing of it and the copy we have, and look how many copies we have of the New Testament and manuscripts. Fifty six hundred. That's overwhelming. So, you, what you see when people question the validity of the Bible, its its pr- preservation and historicity, you see their what? Their bias. That they're not being honest with themselves. That they're being, they're being biased about these situations. And it simply brings up the point once again that they simply don't want to submit themselves to the Scriptures. That's really all there is to it. They don't want to obey. Yes
1: one i would said or remember i've used before is the caesar one people usually know who caesar is or Plato, right. but definitely caesar is asking me do you believe he existed okay well here's a number of copies compared to the bible right if you believe he exists, you should definitely believe the bible
0: right right and uh, a lot of times uh, i'll if i'm on a college campus i'll ask them if they're taking a history class and they'll say yes well why are you taking a history class were you there Maybe it's been a trickle down a lane with that history class. And you're you're only spending time reading those history books and studying them and taking tests on them. You're paying to take the class and paying for the books in order to do these things. And so you see a comparison here. It's overwhelming to compare the New Testament to these, these other books that come from about the same time frame, same period of time in history when it comes to manuscripts. Okay. Does anyone have any questions about that? Okay, so we have lots of manuscript evidence for the Bible. Now, uh, I don't, uh, my source of faith and believing the Bible is reliable is not found in these manuscript evidence. Okay? My source of trusting the Bible is found in my faith in God and that He can preserve what He has written. Okay? And I wouldn't necessarily even use uh, this to try to convert somebody because you can show it's, it's scholars who know these things, and they still don't submit to the scriptures. Okay? Now there are some people who, throughout history, have studied these things out and have repented of atheism and come to a knowledge of the truth. One guy's name is Lee Strobel. Okay. Uh he's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for the Chicago Tribune. He went to Yale Law School. His wife became a Christian. And, uh, you know, he kind of just dismissed it, you know, was glad she was happy. Saw some change in her. She was different, but he's like, ah, that's just garbage. So he sought out to destroy uh, Christianity for his wife by going to these different scholars and asking them tough questions. And when he got done with his research, he became a Christian. And now he's an apologist for Christianity. Josh McDowell is another example. Uh, he had a, a high-level education, and Christians tried to witness to him. And he dismissed it. And he did the same thing, sought out to to do the same thing Lee Strobel did. And he was even before Lee Strobel. And he ended up becoming a Christian. Uh and now he writes books that are this thick, reference books that are called the New Evidence that demands a verdict. Okay, and I know I have a copy of that. Some of you may have copies of that as well, as a reference for these issues. Okay? So this will help you with the science in the Bible, help you uh develop your uh strengthen your or bolster your your faith in the Bible that obviously when it comes to science in the Bible, it, the source of these men's writings must have been God. They had no other way of knowing these things, okay? And when it comes to preserving the Bible, we see this preservation happening here when they compare the manuscripts to what we have today. Okay, let's talk about some prophecies. Uh, when someone asks me how I know the Bible has a source in God, uh, a lot of times I go to prophecies, okay? Okay. Um, now there were over three hundred prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They're called messianic prophecies. He's the Messiah. And a mathematician named Peter Stoner once did a the probability of just eight of those prophecies coming true in one person by chance. Okay, and he said it's ten to the seventeenth power. Okay, so ten with seventeen zeros after it. I don't remember what that number is called, uh, but that's the chance one in ten to the seventeenth power that Eight prophecies can come true by chance in one person. And remember, we're talking about over 300 now. Okay, but let's just take eight for a second. Um, he gave an analogy, Peter Stoner. He said, "Take that many silver coins, 10 to the 17th power, and put them on top of the state of Texas with a fence all around the state of Texas. Now the state of Texas is two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay, Texas is a big state. Mark one of those coins red." Throw it in the pile, mix it up. You blindfold someone at the corner of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. You say, start walking. And whenever you want to, you, whenever you choose to, you can bend down and pick up a coin. And if you pick up the red coin, that's the chance of eight prophecies coming true in someone by chance. Okay. So when these men prophesy about things, like he's going to be born in Bethlehem, uh, he's going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen, none of his bones will be broken. Okay, he'll die among criminals. He'll be buried in a rich man's tomb. Um, that uh, let's see what some other ones here. That he preached in parables. That he'd be resurrected. That he'd be the son of God. That he'd be the seed of Abraham. That he'd be the seed of Isaac and Jacob. Um, that he'd be in the lineage of David. That he would be spit on and scourged, that he be preceded by a forerunner, that he would be called that of Egypt, just some of the prophecies. You know, when it, when these things happened, this is sure proof that the source of these men's writing is not man who cannot see hundreds, even a thousand years into the future, but it must be a God who knows the future. And a lot of times, I'll use an analogy when I'm speaking to somebody. I said, "Listen." If a if you went to a uh, you know a psychic, which we all know they're wicked, but if you went to a psychic and they told you tomorrow, no, not tomorrow, five years from now, you're going to get a car accident at this intersection, you're going to be driving this car, uh, another person will be driving that car. I'll tell you the actual model of the car. This will be your license plate number. This is the bone you'll be broken. This person will die. This is the name of the cop who'll be first on the scene. This is the name of the aimless driver. Those are the eight things they'll tell you. It'll happen five years from now. And they're right to the T of all eight things from five years from now. I say, what would you conclude about that psychic? That they knew the future. That somehow they knew the future. But when it comes to the scripture, let's bring it, you saw how I tied it in there, right? You bring it right back around scripture. So now you have over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. What are you going to do with it now? If the source of the scriptures is God, and he's written this stuff down through holy man like he claims to, what should you do about the Bible? Shouldn't you read it? Shouldn't you study it? Shouldn't you obey it? Shouldn't you preach it? And if it's the truth, and it really is does these things, you must tell other people about it. And so as we as we continue this um going through these issues here, hopefully your faith is being bolstered in these issues. Um It's innumerable. Innumerable. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you, you, I mean, I don't know if they have a number for that, for 300 prophecies. But 10 to the 17th power, let's see what we got. Yeah, you can, yeah, go ahead and put it on the board so everyone can see it. So you got thousands, millions, billions, trillions. What's after trillions? No, tr- billions is four trillions, man, okay. What's after trillions? No one knows? Quadrillion, then quint, and then quintillion. So one quintillion is the number I think. Is that sign right, right, Nita? Yeah, so. one, one quintillion.
3: To
1: make
3: sure I... you have
1: chance of winning the uh, 320 million. Uh,
0: what's going on right now? Though? Well, the chance of winning the lottery in California is one in 18 million. Okay. okay, so you can win the lottery several times in a row before you get to that number. That's just eight. Yeah, that's just eight. That's not that's not all 300. It's just eight of them. Okay, so we get a, a picture. Does he? Okay. The, uh huh. Very small. Right. And you pile that
1: many electrons up in a pile
0: be like 10 times than the known universe. Right. Yeah, I, I think he says something like that about th- all three hundred props. Not enough electrons in the universe to to give that probability. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's impossible. It's impossible for it to happen by chance. So
3: we get the Yeah. That picture is a good picture though, because you can, we picture
1: piles of things. You right. Know, piles, of words mm-hmm. piles of or piles of big piles of a dump or something. But electron, a pile that's ten times bigger than the universe of electrons. Right. Electron. Right. So let me ask, I'd be questioning is how do they come up with these odds? Because nobody knows the future except God, so we can have nothing compared to except... Well,
0: the, you take the you take the factors that are factored in, <laughs> and you take the number of people who could have been, in the situations and you figure from there the probability of it happening by chance. I think that's the way I did it. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah it's but, pretty hard to explain. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot, it's a lot of very
3: variable rudimentary statistics fun. and it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And, uh, but they have they have scientific ways of doing that. Yeah. And he was a uh, uh, he was a doctor of, of
0: mathematics. So yeah, he wasn't just some guy off the streets. Of guy. He he knew it. And no people don't challenge what... And I never I never heard anyone challenge his his uh, <laughs> math on this no either. So,
3: and the other
0: question I had was, uh, did you say Coverdale uh, translate from Latin? No, Miles Coverdale uh, was from the Hebrew and Greek, but he used a lot of Tyndale's work that he had done on that to make the Great Bible. Tyndale
3: used Latin.
0: No, no, Tyndale used Hebrew and Greek as well. It was Wycliffe that used translated from sorry, Latin Wycliffe, into into I'm Middle like English. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which would have been like 5th, 6th century. That yeah. Latin book it goes back to. Yeah. So, yeah. You're done or you're just, you yes. Yes, I am. Oh,
1: okay. Um, I guess just automatically walked us into this by saying, you know, you believe God can protect the manuscripts. Now, this brings in the King James, usually only controversy of mm-hmm. which, which translation has been protected then, so we can actually have the truth in certain translations somewhere, or in multiple languages in a
0: proper translation. Well, I don't think I would take it that far. Okay. I, I think the Greek and Hebrew has been preserved. But English is a matter of translation. But and that's why God has allowed the, the manuscripts to be preserved so we can check it for ourselves.
1: Yeah. I would study this in depth, maybe as much as you have. Like we know there are still variations within manuscripts, too. Mm-hmm. I see them at the bottom of my Bible all the time. Right. So then how do we choose?
0: Well, I, I don't know how deep I, I've been praying about this. I don't know how deep I want to get into that because some people just aren't going to understand it. I don't want it to hurt their faith if they don't understand it and you know start to question the scriptures. But there are different manuscript families. Um, the manuscript family that I I follow is dates back to the ninth century and it was preserved by the Greek Orthodox Church. And I I, I want you to understand something about manuscripts, okay? The material that they were made on, okay? First papyrus, reed and then we have. Uh, animal skin and leaf leaves being pressed together, these things do not last very long, okay, and put yourself in the mindset of the first second, third century Christians who were being persecuted everywhere they went they weren 't thinking about preserving the oldest copy possible in order for the people in the twenty first century to be able to trust the bible that wasn 't what they were thinking. they were thinking this copy over here is falling apart. this copy which i 've made I've made five, you know ten years ago, is in good shape. I'm going to get rid of this copy, I'm going to take this copy with me, okay? progressively um, age. Yes, and of course, each one would age, you know, even the books we have today. I mean, people who are old book collectors, they had books from the 19th century that are falling apart, okay? And the, the manuscripts we do have that date back to the 3rd and 4th century, they are being preserved in cases that keep the cases, the proper temperature, the proper lighting, otherwise they just disintegrate. When they started finding, uh, manuscripts in caves in the Middle East, they, they couldn't see it in the cave, what it was saying, so they'd bring out the light and it would just disintegrate as soon as they brought it out of the cave. Cause the cave had a certain amount of dampness, a uh, certain amount of, of pressure, certain amount of, of you know, the darkness instead of the light, so when they brought it out, it was just disintegrate right in his hand. And so these ones that are, that are really old that are being preserved, are being preserved in special circumstances and situations in order to preserve them. Otherwise, they would just fall apart. Okay, and so, but when it comes to manuscripts, um, personally, the the family that has the and I'm gonna, I'm going to touch on this in a little bit here. Okay, the the older family of manuscripts, uh, which is called the critical text. Okay, so you have the critical text for the older family of manuscripts, and you have the majority text uh, for the I guess you can say newer family of manuscripts. They're, they date back to the ninth century. Okay, the critical text. There's very few copies of it, okay, and there's a lot more disagreement in those than there's in the majority text. The majority text is with complete agreement in every part, and the only parts that they have disagreement on really is, is spelling, there's some spelling issues, and there's some word reversal. There's nothing else really, there's no issues with that. And so people who are involved in something called textual criticism, where they take these different texts and try to figure out what the original says, They'll say the critical text is the most reliable one because it's the oldest. You see, there's an assumption there that old equals good. My assumption is that old equals unused. Old equals, uh, it wasn't circulated. And there's, and when there's few copies of it, that tells me it wasn't circulated either. When it comes to the majority text, there's thousands of copies of that. They're in agreement with each other and the reason why we don't have older manuscripts they're well used and therefore and they were well dispersed especially in the area where the apostles were the most from Rome all the way to Antioch which was like the fountainhead of the church which were Paul put down churches where John was in Asia minor until all up until the time he died in Ephesus around 100 AD and so uh the majority text is what i follow because i believe is the most accurate it was the most used. It was the most well dispersed throughout that time. And um, if you look at it for yourself, I think you'd probably be in agreement with it. But when you look in the New King James Bible, what the translator have done in to, to show the writers is to show them the differences between the manuscript behind the New King James and the manuscript behind the NIV, the NASB, the ESV, and a lot of the other uh, newer translations.
3: Yes. Here's all the information you take and do with it, whatever you want, but this is what we see besides what we're putting in the James translation. I want to make an assertion. I don't think you'd uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think this is true. In the, uh, the majority text, uh, you can go to the Old Testament and look back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and see very uh, great similarities.
0: I don't know that. I don't answer that. I do know this: that uh, when you go back to the early church fathers and them quoting everything, that uh, almost everything they say comes from the majority text family. Okay, um, and that you know, if we had no manuscripts, here's another little you know fact I'll throw out there: even if we had no manuscripts of the Bible, you can com- recompose all the New Testament except for I think six verses from the early church fathers' writings. Okay. The fact out there. But getting back to the, the footnotes here just for a second, um often you'll see the, the letters N-U in your footnotes. Okay, what that means is uh it's you're are getting these references from these the Nestle Aland, Nestle, N-E-S-T-L-E, is one guy who h- helped to form the critical text, and UBS is United Bible Societies. Okay, so it's it's a, it's, it's an abbreviation for that. Nestle Aland UBS. They're basically the same text text exactly. With a few differences, and that's where you're you're getting the variations from. Okay. And um the, and the Nessel, who was one of the first guys, he's a German guy who put the, his Greek text together, he got a lot of his work from Westcott and Hort, okay, and from other people from that period of time. And so but these things didn't start happening. There there was no problem with textual families until the nineteen until the eighteen hundreds, nineteenth century. Um there's a a manuscript from the Vatican called Codex Vaticanus, okay, and all codex means, this, this kind of weird word, all codex means is a book, okay, an old book, okay, where it has binding and everything, some kind of binding to keep the pages together, so this was found in the 1500s, a long time ago, it was found in the Vatican, and it was a complete manuscript of the whole Bible, and, um, Someone made a, a a copy of it, and it came out in the 19th century, and then there was lots of discrepancy between that and the majority text, which had been used all along up to that point in the 19th century for the Bible, translating the Bible into English from that, okay? And so a lot of scholars started to uh, pick it up, and they thought it was better. But if you look at some of the early scholars who were using that text, they were wicked men. They were not godly men at all. And... um and then you have the uh, Conex Sinaiticus, which was found in a monastery in, S- in the P- Sinai Peninsula. And it was dated to the 4th century, just like the Codex of Atacanus was dated to the 4th century. So we have complete copies of the Bible dated to the 4th century, Okay, these two copies. But they have lots of disagreement between each other and lots of disagreement with the majority text. And so that's why when it comes to picking out your Bible you're going to read from a study from, I encourage you to only use the King James and New King James. Because okay, the other uh, versions of the Bible, which are all modern now, okay, within the last 100 years or so, they go from, I think, a group of manuscripts that are, have been uh, compromised in some way, whether intentionally or unintentionally, no matter how far back they date. Um, and it shows the fact that they were able to survive so long, and there's no other copies of, of them throughout history from, from the 4th century where they dated back to up until now, They're the only ones, is because they weren't dispersed, they weren't well used, they weren't accepted by the church leaders of that time, and so I, I, if they weren't accepted by them, why should it be accepted by me? If they weren't dispersed by them, why should I make an English copy and disperse it to people? You know, so while the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, all those versions of the Bible may have some of the Word of God in them, they don't have all of the Word of God in them, and there's some, there's some corruption there. So I, I, believe, and you can look on the Refining Fire Fellowship website, there's a, a page called the Bible, and you can find on there which manuscript family to pick. There's a whole article on there. It's written by, it's written by Tim Warner, but I agree with it, what he says on there, and it'll explain these things more in detail. That's about Tracy.
2: Yeah. Another thing that have to keep in mind is, you know, the Bible, like Kerrigan pointed out early in the teaching, comes in three languages. You got Hebrew, you got Aramaic, a very small amount of Aramaic, and you have Greek. Now, Hebrew, we know, comes from the Jewish people. Aramaic comes from the, uh, the captivity in Babylon. That's a Babylonian language. And then you got the Greek. Now, everything that we've been talking about with the nestle aland the uh, majority text, the Alexandrian text, the uh, Codex Vaticanus, uh, the Codex Seneca- Senecatus, uh, that's all Greek. That's all New Testament. Uh, now, I think what John was pointing to from the, uh, the Qumran caves... To he was talking about the book of Isaiah. Yeah. There was a complete codex of Isaiah that was found in the Qumran caves. And mm-hmm. that obviously has nothing to do with the uh, majority text or the Seneca's case, all that stuff. That has to do with the Old Testament. And that basically it verifies the copies of the Old Testament we have, which is done through the Masoretic families. There's two Masoretic families that the Old Testament comes from, uh, and, and it was done in the Hebrew, and one Masoretic uh, family was the uh, uh, Ben Chaim, and that's where the uh, the new, well, actually the, uh, the King James comes from the Ben Chaim. Then we have the Ben Asher, which is the older one, uh, and that's where the New King James comes from the Ben Asher. But when you look at the Masoretic text of the Ben Asher and the Ben Chaim, there's literally no disagreement between them. The only difference between the Ben Chaim and the Ben Asher is found in the uh, the textual notes that are not part of the. St- the, the scripture itself. So just in the notes that there's differences and that most everybody agrees that that that's irrelevant. So what what the Qumran caves have done is validated that those copies that we have through the Masoretic text are completely accurate because the entire book of Isaiah was found intact in the Qumran caves and perfectly lines up with the Masoretic copies that we have of the book of Isaiah. So that's that's what that that kind of proves right there. We said to keep separate in our mind, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, all these things that we're talking about mostly reside in the New Testament. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and just to, just to, so you know, uh, you can never understand these things and never know But you can still be a Christian, and uh, these things aren't exactly the most important things to know about. So for young people who are listening, uh, it really should be of really no concern to you, to be honest. Uh, the scriptures we have today... Uh, I believe, have been preserved, they've been validated through the manuscript evidence we have throughout time, and uh, it's trustworthy and reliable and applicable to our lives. So one of the reasons I didn't want to bring this up too much, I don't want to bring any confusion to those who are not understanding these things, have not looked into them themselves. Uh, but if anyone wants to a- ask more questions about this, we can talk about it later on um, for those things. But does anyone else have any questions about anything else we talked about today before we finish today? Must have anything else they want to add? Uh, yes.
2: I just want to point out that the facts you brought out, the scientific facts, are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I first saw those. I uh, think it was Answers in Genesis put out the same 101 Bible facts. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was?
0: No, no that's not where okay. I got it from.
2: Okay, well, that, that's where I got the same information from. That. Okay. There's there's uh, tons and tons of scientific facts. you want to take it upon yourself to look into it.
0: Yeah, that's just a small portion of them. Right. Yeah, Josh.
2: Um, I have a question. When you said that. Uh, the Bible was the
0: best-selling book, and it, it was printed in how many different like, languages? Or? Over 2,400 languages, now, as of 2004. So we've had nine more years since then. Uh, so who knows how many languages been printed now. And that was, those 2,400 languages comprised 95% of the people in the world. Um, not 95% of the languages, but the people speak those 2,400 languages. God is really reaching out. And we have people like, uh, the Wycliffe Translating Group, Andrew John Wycliffe, um, who are continuing this work throughout the, uh, throughout the world. There's, uh, I think the Wycliffe Translators were, invo- were involved in the one I'm thinking of, a video I put on my YouTube channel which talks about the Kim tribe, the people, who, they, the whole tribe basically became Christian. And um, they wanted the Bible in their own language. And when it was finally printed in their own language, they could have the whole to themselves, they had this huge party waiting for this plane to arrive. Just a huge party of this. The whole tribe was out there just rejoicing that they could have the scriptures in their own language, finally. And, uh, I, you know, I wonder how many Christians in America really think about the Bible like that, really treat it that way.
1: I guess more the reality of as they go out, and not just them, it's us too, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to deal with probably more than anything King James only. And not that I'm sitting here picking on anybody. I really like the King James. I'm not picking on anybody. It's just that, that type of division they're going to run into, I guess. Uh, maybe something maybe we talk more about that some other
0: time. Or yeah, the King James only position, which we have friends who have that position. We have the Consumer Fire Fellowship Group. Some of you have gone down and visited them, they believe that. And we don't despise them. The King James is a good translation. I personally think the King James is a better translation. Brother Tracy prefers it to King James, not only, but he prefers it. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you have the right manuscript family. Now the question I ask King James onlyist is uh why that Bible over the Great Bible, which Miles Coverdale did? Why that over the Tyndale Bible? You know, why that over John Wycliffe's Middle English? Bible. Why that over the Geneva Bible? Uh, why that over those things? And really, they're just taking it by faith. And it's like Romans fourteen twenty three 23 says, according to your faith, so be it unto you. And so if that's their faith, that they want to trust that God preserves the Bible in a certain language in English, they can do that. But it was originally written in Greek and Hebrew, which is an original inspiration that the writers have. So that's where I think inspiration stops. Uh, unless they're going to assume that God re-inspires when people translate a Bible from one language to the next, okay? So I believe it's inspired in the original languages, and I believe the manuscripts we have today that are behind the New King James and King James are the inspired Word of God. And so there can be differences between the King James and New King James and the words they use, and uh, we can. That's why sometimes I'll go into the Greek words. We do that sometimes to bring a more fuller meaning, or maybe. Uh, to see exactly what the writer's trying to say, you know because you know translators for translator are trans- they're men, and sometimes they have biases, and so I want to make sure I know what it 's saying for myself and, um, and so it 's good to know these things, but even if you never knew Greek, you never knew Hebrew, you didn 't have someone who could teach you those things or going to word studies you could still pick up this Bible and read it and understand it and apply it to your life, and God will use it, God will speak through you as you speak it. And God will use it in other people's lives. It's still the Word of God. You know, and, and, and this is, and these translations, I've looked into it, they're good. I think they're good translations. And so if someone, if someone says in the open air, oh, there's been, uh, it's been translated over and over again, it's like, no, it's been translated once from the Hebrew and the Greek into the English. That's one translation. And I said, well, it's been translated so many times, we just, we missed things. I was well, give me an example. And guess what? They never have an example. They just want to discredit the Word of God because they don't want to obey it themselves. Because if it is right, guess what? Guess what it says about them? Guess what it says they must do if they don't want to perish? So they'll say these things, but they have nothing to back it up with. They're just pulling it out of thin air because they don't like the Scriptures is really what it breaks down to. And they say, well, well, when translating, you lose meaning sometimes, even if they'll submit to There's been one translation. They'll say, well, give me an example, and they can't give an example. And then I'll give them an example. So you're telling me I can't go to Spain right now not knowing how to speak a word of Spanish and be able to communicate to people who are speaking Spanish through a translator and do it effectively. Is that what you're telling me? That all around the world I have to know every single language in order to speak to people in those languages. I can't use a translator. And of course they won't believe that. People are taught Spanish all the time. They're taught French all the time. And in doing so they're being taught it by someone who's speaking English to them while they're teaching it to them. So there's, there's nothing wrong with translation. Of things, um, there's difficult at times. Like for example, uh, you know, in in the in the Greek, for the word love, there's philos, eros, and agape. Okay, and they all have they all really mean different kinds of love. But when we translate English, we just translate it as love. love so sometimes, yeah, John says he loves pizza, and then he says I love Brother Tracy. It doesn't mean the same way. He says he loves his wife. He says he loves his wife. It's three different meanings completely different meaning. And he says he loves God's even a different meaning. Right. But we're using the same English word. It, should, it may be difficult in communicating in that sense but it's still love.
1: That's normal in
0: every language. Yeah. Meaning, so. that, that's normal in every language. Some languages are more vast than others. The English language is a pretty vast language. I mean, you can say one thing in one instance and it'll mean something completely different in another instance. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But uh, there's lots of examples of that. You got one? I, yeah, I just want to make one. one uh, okay.
3: when you pick up the, the scriptures in doubt, saying, I'm going to prove you're wrong, they're doing it uh, from the wrong mindset, and that's where we have to get to, we have to get to this point, where we see it on college campus all, all the time, but we'll take the critical texts and try to use that as evidence why the Bible isn't true, mm-hmm. well they're, by faith they're believing that, and they're, they're supporting there is no God, but they're going to use the critical test to prove that the Bible isn't true,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes when someone says the Bible isn't true, I say, well, what, what evidence could I give you that would make you believe it's true? And they'll give some evidence that's impossible to give. Like, show me the original copies that were written down by the original people. And I said, well, how would you, how would I, even if I could show you something that I, I presume was that, how would I prove to you it was that? Unless you were there when they were writing and you watched them write it. You know, if, if that's the evidence they need, then even the churches who Paul wrote to couldn't say that. Because they weren't there when he actually wrote it. It was delivered to them. And it was declared that Paul wrote it. So even they couldn't give that evidence. So they're asking for impossible evidence because they don't want to submit. That's what it breaks down to. You have to be omniscient to know all things. And only God is that. So uh, it, it, we do have evidence. We do have proof. I presented some of that with you for, for you today for you to, to consider and to boost boost your faith in the Word of God. But it does go back to faith. And people have to understand it. It is going to take faith to believe the Word of God. And I have other evidences. My life has been changed. I was a wicked sinner. And I, you know, I loved my sin. And overnight, I was a different person. Tell me what person can do that to themselves. Everything utterly changes overnight. And you have that same testimony as well. That you're different. That you're changed. That you're a sheep of God and you hear His voice. And those are all evidences of the of the script, God of Scripture. You something want to say, Josh?
1: Um, yeah, when you were talking about how the people met in that uh, village or whatever, and they mm-hmm. got all the Bibles, right. um, there's
2: still people around the world like that that still get their Bibles, and we right. went to a uh, West of the Martyrs thing, and this guy showed a video, I mean, as they watched it, of this, like, um, so I think it's in China or somewhere, and uh, they, like, Bibles in there, and then right. shows them, op- like, open up this huge briefcase full of just Bibles, and right. it's like people who were like, starving for food, they rushed, and they were like, grabbing, right. and they got a Bible, and then they're thanking God and crying, and it was cool.
0: How opposite it is in America. You have to have the briefcase full of money for people to come running to it.
2: Mm-hmm. That's you what know. it was like if, if, if I took, like, a briefcase full of, like, $100 million and set it in the middle of the busiest part of New York and just opened it. That's what it was like
0: when those people came and brought that. It's more precious than silver or gold to them. It's the it should be to us. Let me let me finish up with one little little story here. I think I've mentioned this before, but as I was praying this morning, the Lord kind of put it on the heart, and I think just remembered about it. I was reading Ravi Zacharias's biography. I think you've read it too, brother, from East to West. I haven't, read you haven't read it? Okay, you have a copy of it, though. Yeah, yeah. It's from it's, it's Ravi Zacharias, an apologist of the Christian faith. And um, he grew up Hindu, but he, he tells the story of how after he became a Christian, he was traveling around the world preaching. And one of his assistants, a guy who assisted him at one point in time, who was a Christian, uh, ended up getting uh, arrested or putting put in prison for his faith. Okay, and he cried out to God day and night for God to deliver him, and God wouldn't deliver him, so he lost his faith because God wouldn't deliver him from his situation. And eventually, he got put on uh, you know bathroom duty. And he had to go to the bathroom and clean it every day. And these soldiers were just filthy. Uh, th- this is the bathroom they would go in. And they didn't they didn't keep it clean on purpose to make it harder on him. And eventually he found out that um, these soldiers were using pages of the Bible for toilet paper. And uh, he found that out. He realized that. And he began, as he went in there every day, he despised that job before he started to love that job. Because... The first page that he... I can't remember what it said, but the first page he was able to read, it rebuked him for his unbelief. It rebuked him for his unbelief. And he began to wash those pages off. Day after day as he went in there, wash them off so he could have the Bible for himself to be able to read day in and day out. So he was willing to wash the feces of other men off of pages in order to have the Bible for himself again so he can repent and begin to walk in the truth again and be able to read the scriptures day in and day out. And you know, if a man like that who... Apostatized and then came back to the faith is willing to do that to read the Bible. What what should we do? I mean, we have such freedom to read the scriptures. You know, does it, does it sit on your desk and collect dust? Does it, does it, do you, do you think to yourself, well, I should read my Bible now, but I got other things to do today. I I got, I got work to do. I'm, I'm busy. Is that the way you treat the Bible? Or, or does the Bible take precedence? Does the Bible take precedence in your life that you, that you, you, you treat it like it's supposed to be treated and, uh, you're, you're you're reading it and you're you're holding it in high esteem, like like we said a couple of weeks ago, Brother Kevin, I think quoted it. Uh, my word is above my name, God said. And so, if we treasure the name of Jesus, how much more should we treasure His Word? Yes, Wycliffe and Tyndale, two men. You know, Wycliffe was never he wasn't killed for the faith, but he he was persecuted for it. And so were the Lollard preachers who he had sent out. Lots of people have suffered for us for for this. uh, We ought to treat it accordingly.
3: It's a gift from God. Sure is. It's a gift from God to us. Sure is. It's, it's, It's meant to be read and studied and valued and defined and obeyed.
0: Okay, well, if nothing else, we'll...